We're starting. We're starting. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Today is the last adult meeting in this building. Um, uh, oh, George, are you recording it? Okay. All right, so I wanted to talk about um, a topic that I think is uh, important for us, especially as uh, American Coptic Orthodox, but even as any kind of Orthodox which is this idea of tradition with a big T versus tradition with a little T. And, uh, and sort of let's think about a, li a little bit about the, these traditions, first of all. And, but before we do that, let's talk about dogma in general and where does dogma in general come from. Um, and you know, people can argue, why is there such an intricate set of dogma and theology? Why do we have all of these various beliefs? Why do we have all of these things that we, you know, rituals and liturgies and so intricate, you know, um, in the theology and, and all the writings that we have when the early church was very simple, right? They just had a very simple faith, right? They believed in Jesus and that was pretty much it, right? And everybody can do whatever they wanted to do. You wanted to wear this, you wanted to wear that, you wanted to sing this, you wanted to sing that. It was all just kind of free-flowing, peace and love kind of stuff, right? Kumbaya, all the good things, right? And so why did, why did uh, the church decide, or what, why did all this intricate dogma where I talk about the nature of Christ and the, 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 the energy of the Trinity and all of this stuff, why did it have to happen like this? And so basically the, the church was trying to protect itself from one thing. Anybody want to guess what that one thing is? Heresy, right? So basically, who said that? Is that you, maybe? Angel. I, I heard a voice of angels coming out of the altar. <laughs> voice of a heretic coming from. <laughs> so I'm being recorded, all right? So um, anyway, it's all pot. Anyway, it's going to pot. Right, so the church had to protect itself from these heretics. So what would happen is a heretic would come out, call him heretic A, and he would say, XYZ. And then the church would respond and saying, no, it's not XYZ, it's ABC. And these expressions of faith became dogmas, and they, and they were in reaction to a heretic speaking. And so then the church layered something on and said, okay, okay, remember how we said, you know, there's um, whatever, Father, Son, well, now we're going to call it the Holy Trinity, and we're going to say that they're all co-substantial, and they're co-essential, and they're all, you know, there was no time when one existed and the other did not, and then there's a Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and one is not, and, and we had to get in this intricate de detail. Why? Because the heresy made us do that, okay? Um, and so the church adapted to heresy by creating dogma, by creating rituals, by creating liturgy, and got more and more complex. The calendar got complex. The structure of the building got complex, right? Because we didn't used to have building structure. No one cared, right? You just built, prayed wherever, you, wherever people didn't kill you, right? And then someone built probably, I'm guessing, someone built a, a lousy-looking shack or something really just not very appropriate. And then the church said, you know what? We shouldn't just pray in any building. Let's pray in something that has one of these shapes, right? Because someone, you know, 
built a church that looked like an octopus and said, this is unique, this is creative, let's go for the octopus look. And then the church said, no, let's make it a cross. Let's not do octopuses anymore, right? And then we now have this, this structure that says we have to pray in a building that looks like a cross. Okay, so what am I saying? Why am I doing this? Is because uh, this is a very important point that we're going to get back to in a second, that the source of this dogma in the church there's two sources of dogma in the church. One of them is the Bible, the sacred scripture. And then the second one is the tradition of the church. Okay? Um, and and St. Paul, in, in his uh, letter to the epistle to the Th Thessalonians, says, Brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us either by word of mouth or by letter. So there's two things. You were taught to us either by word or of mouth or letter. So there's two ways that tradition that, that stuff is taught. And use word of mouth first. This is the, the sacred tradition. And so what's the relationship between the Bible and the tradition? Because every once in a while you'll encounter someone who'll say, you know, if it's not in the Bible, I'm not going to do it. Is that in the Bible? Is making the sign of the cross in the Bible? Is facing east in the Bible? Is praying liturgy like this in the Bible? If it's not in the Bible, I'm not going to do it. And so well, we'll say, well, that's, it's tradition. And like, well, is that the same thing? I mean, it's, which one's higher? Which, one's, which one dominates the other? And so the, 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 the first question we have to, is, have to ask is, what is the source of Scripture? Where does the Bible come from? Like, who made up the Bible? You know, so when I'm talking to someone who's evangelical, for example, they're holding the Bible and they say, if it's not in this book, I'm not going to do it. And I say, okay, but who told you to hold that book? Why are you holding that book? You know, there's lots of other epistles that are not in that book. There are other gospels not in that book. There's tons of writings not in that book. Some were written at the same time as the, the ones in your hand, and somebody excluded them. Who's that? The church, the tradition. So the Bible is a function of tradition. So the, the same live church that created the Bible that said you should read these books and not those books, also said you should face east, and also said you should make the sign of the cross, and also said you should have this and that, and all of the traditions are the same source, right? There isn't two sources, it's just really one, right? And everything kind of comes out of this life of the church. So I'm building up to something that I think is very important, this idea of this big T tradition. So tradition has been existent from even before the incarnation. You know, you see little hints of it, right? Cain and Abel, right? They wanted to offer a sacrifice to God. What did they do? They built altars. Who told them to build altars? Moses hasn't come along yet. Exodus, Leviticus, all this stuff hasn't happened. The law of Moses hasn't happened. No one's talked about altars. It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, none of that's happened yet. This is, you know, right after Adam and Eve. Who taught them and we say this is part of the tradition this oral tradition this life Noah did the same thing he built an offer an altar and, and made a sacrifice to God so the the big T tradition has lots of important aspects to it right because not everything is mentioned in the Bible many times you know you'll, you'll you know little examples right you, you hear that Jesus preached all day and at the end of the day um, the people were hungry and so he fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish what did he say all day? It's not written down. He talked all day long. And yet it's not written in the Gospels. 
And oftentimes, St. Paul will say something like, well, we'll talk more when I get there. You know, I'm going to write this epistle to you now, but we'll talk when I get there, and I'll explain to you more things. But then it never says what he says. So are these things lost? No, we say they're part of this oral tradition that we've been handed down, right, that comes orally. And St. Basil has this great quote. I wasn't going to read it, but I think I should. He says, among the doctrines and teachings preserved by the church, we have some from written sources and collected others transmitted in an unexplicit form from the apostolic tradition. They all have the same value. For if we were to put aside the unwritten customs as having no great value, we should, unknown to ourselves, bring harm to the gospel in its very essence. So he's saying we have two things, oral and written traditions, and they both have the same weight, and we can't discount one, with, and we can't have one without the other. In fact, trying to, to understand the gospels in, an, in a vacuum is nearly impossible. How many different Protestant sects do we have in the United States right now? Like 10,000. Okay, and so what happens is, is when you just say, I'm going to read the Bible, and then I'm going to follow Jesus. Well, one guy reads the Bible, and then he follows Jesus like that, right? And then another guy reads the Bible, right? And we, we know about the Protestant Reformation. It starts with Martin Luther and Swingley, right? And then, and then you have Lutheranism, and then you have, you know, all kinds of Methodists and Baptists, and then Southern Baptists, and then within Southern Baptists, they divide, and then you have... Pentecostals and Episcopalians and Anglicans and it can, continues to divide and then it and then it goes into covenant and the next thing you know you have subdivisions that aren't even you know you'll have Church of the Foothills right you know it's on Foothill Boulevard right and that's it that's the denomination and it's it will keep dividing and the reason it divides is because you know I'm I'm a Baptist and I'm talking to another Baptist and then we start arguing and I'm like well you know what you guys are wrong I'm gonna create another group called the Southern Baptists right and I've heard people Southern Baptists who say, you know, um, that to go to heaven, you can't just be a Baptist, you have to be a Southern Baptist, right, that the Baptists don't even go to heaven, right, so that's the kind of division that we have, and this happens because I'm reading the Bible, you read the Bible, and each of us makes up the whole thing, right, there's no, there's no structure holding us all together, we're just reading these things and then trying to concoct a religion for it. I'm going to skip some things. So some of the, um, I'm still talking about big T tradition, the holy apostolic tradition. And so some of the, the conditions of sound tradition is the first thing, it can't contradict the Bible. Okay, so a tradition that we have in the church can never contradict the Bible. It also can't contradict past tradition, so it can't contradict itself. And then it should be accepted by the entire church, by the entire ecumenical body of Christ. Right, so these are the conditions of sound tradition, the big T and some examples, I've mentioned some, making the sign of the cross, this is a, a tradition. Triple immersion in baptism, it's a tradition. The prayers of the Egbeya, the hours, a tradition. Fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays, although it's from the very first century, it's still a tradition. The ceremony of praying on dead people, this is a tradition, it's not in the Bible anywhere. The ceremony of marriage, that we have a marriage in the church, also a tradition. Facing east when we build the church. And, and lastly, making Sunday the holy day, right? What used to be the holy day? Saturday, that's what the Jews celebrated. So switching it to Sunday is a tradition. It, nowhere in the Bible does it say honor Sunday. But yet many of our evangelical friends, brothers, do honor Sunday, right? And it's like, well, why do you honor Sunday? It doesn't say so in the Bible. Well, it's a tradition. So now the, the, the final thing I want to talk about, and really the point of what I want to talk about, is this, is this sacred tradition, this apostolic tradition, living or dead? This is what I talked about at the center. 
So very important, the tradition is alive and not dead or stagnant. And we see many examples of the church. I started with them telling you about the creation of dogma as a reaction to something that's happening in the world. Right? So something happens in the world and the church reacts. And so the church is constantly changing. Constantly. I mean, we even saw it as recently as COVID, right? Uh, you know, some churches, you know, they, they stopped using the mystere, the spoon. They adapted. They, you know, staggered. They, we did all kinds of things during COVID. So the church is continually moving. And we can't say that the tradition is like giving a book to a kid and saying, you know what, you don't really have a dad, but here's a book, and this book will raise you. Right? I'm just going to write a book, I'm going to hand it to you, and I'm going to say, read this book, kid, and this will teach you how to be a man, or this will teach you how to be a daughter, a woman. It doesn't work that way, right? How do parents raise kids? Well, they see the kid doing something. Then they react to that situation and they say, well, okay, now here's what happened, but here's what you should have done, or here's how you could have done that better, or here's what I think you should do, or let me help you out like this. So what happens is the world gives us a stimulus, the parent looks at the stimulus, looks at how the child's reacting, and then adjusts. You can't just ex ante write a book and say, now read it and become a, a, a man or a woman or, or a Christian. So the idea is the tradition has to be reactive. The tradition has to be alive. Why? Because the church is whom? Church is Christ. And Christ isn't dead. Right? And so as the church is alive and reacting, as Christ is alive and reacting, so is the church. So there's this great book on this topic called Living Tradition by a guy named John Meyendorf. And when he wanted to write about tradition, he called it Living Tradition. And it's, this is really important for us, right? Because we see dynamic times happening, right? I mean, some of the examples we already see, Ambassarapion wanting to celebrate on the 25th as well as the 7th, right? What is that? Well, we're in America, and so we're going to change the date. Is that okay? Is that a problem? Does that contradict our fathers? So I'll give you some quotes from this book. He says, the term traditional theology can also denote a dead theology if it means identifying traditionalism with simple repetition. Ah, it's perfect. Traditionalism is not simple repetition. Traditional doesn't mean imitate. So if I want to be traditional, I don't just copy what someone did in the past. That's not being traditional. The tradition has to be alive and flowing. He continues, such a theology may prove incapable of recognizing the issues of its own age, which is true, while it presents, presents yesterday's arguments to confront new heresies. Because if the, if the church is not dynamic and alive, then today's problems are addressed using yesterday's theology, which may or may not be effective. I mean, let's just take something simple like organ donation. Can Christians donate organs? This is, an, this is a debate, right? That some people say no. Some people say things like, you know, um, the body is chrismated with the myrun, it's baptized, it's, it's Christian, and therefore I should not be able to donate an organ from a Christian body into a non-Christian body. There are people, bishops, priests, who say things like that. I adamantly disagree with that position, but it doesn't matter what I think or what they think. 
the church has to have a council, and let's make a decision about that. Like, we need to continue to be writing creeds. The creeds shouldn't stop because the issues don't stop, right? And so we see lots of issues coming up that we need to address that we can't simply look at the prior, we can't look at what St. John Chrysostom wrote and say what he says about organ donation because obviously that wasn't a thing, right? And so that thinking that you've, I've heard priests and bishops say and servants, it's very Islamic, Jewish, you know, basically, uh, you know, I'm not gonna give my precious body to the body of an infidel, right? Which is a kind of a, a scary, horrible way to think, right? But there are people who think that, and in the absence of guidance, they'll continue to think that way. He continues, in fact, dead traditionalism cannot be truly traditional. It is an essential characteristic of patristic theology that it was able to face the challenges of its own time while remaining consistent with the original apostolic orthodox faith. What's interesting is when you read the fathers, you know, whoever tells you the fathers were old fuddy-duddies and they're very boring, they've never read them, right? The fathers, they were all extremists. They're radical. They had big mouths, they were very aggressive, they were assertive, they were dynamic, you know, they got excommunicated, they got exiled, they got threatened, they got killed, but then they just kept going. And the reason we all look back, and, and they were excommunicated, like St. John Chrysostom was excommunicated, right? St. Athanasius was exiled five times, right? These guys were, were, were dynamic, right? And they were uh, assertive. And they were not like cowering into a corner saying, you know, well, what, well you know, what's, what should we say and what should we do? They were, they were presenting theology. St. Athanasius was presenting, was trying to teach theology by using terms that people could understand. He would use terms from philosophy. In fact, many of the things we learn have a bit of this philosophy in them because that's what people got back then. They all read Socrates and Plato. So that's what they understood. So he used their language to address the issue, right? And people condemned him for it. How could you use the language of these philosophers? These guys are pagan, horrible, whatever. I need the people to understand. And so I like this when he says dead traditionalism is not truly traditional. He continues, thus simply to repeat what the fathers said, which we do all the time, is to be unfaithful to their spirit and to the intention embodied in their theology. Just repeating the fathers is not being faithful to the fathers because they wouldn't have just repeated it, right? They would look back and they would, they'd come down and they'd say, why are you saying what I said in the fifth century that was a problem I had in the fifth century in my local church, and I was addressing it. You don't have that problem. Why are you giving this sermon? You have this, this problem, this problem, this problem, this problem, and those problems. And we go, oh, well, St. Athanasius, you know, we're being so traditional. We're just going to say the same thing you said in the fourth century over and over and over again. And he's like, that's not what I did. I'll give you guys an example. There's, a, there's several uh, hymns in the Tezbeha that are very beautiful. One of them is Arib Salim. And for those of you who know Urb Salin, um, it, it, uh, it rhymes. And it goes Urb Salin, and, and it's alpha, beta, gamma, delta. It's alphabetical, okay? And so the guy who wrote it, his name is Sarkis. How do we know? He put his name in the hymn. Whatever, not very humble, but that's my opinion. Um, <laughs> so Sarkis writes this thing, and he makes this kind of cool little chant. It rhymes. It's alphabetical. 
when you read the translation, every once in a while you get to a thing and you're like, ah, you know, it doesn't really make much sense, right? But then you're like, but at least it rhymes, okay? It's good. Like, you know, sometimes in songs, when a song rhymes, a poem rhymes, it has an impact, okay? And you're willing to give some creative license to something that doesn't quite fit as long as it rhymes, right? Just think rap music, okay? As long as it rhymes, you're like, okay, it rhymes with, you know, I'm not going to say, right? So, <laughs> so many bad words. Um, what are you talking about? So, so, so when he wrote this hymn, when he wrote this hymn, what did he do? What did he do? I want to be traditional, right? I want to do what he did. What did he do? He wrote something that was unique, something that was alphabetical, and something that rhymed. That's what he did. So then what do I go along and do? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say the exact same thing you said in a language I don't understand. And then I'm going to translate it into English, even worse. And now it doesn't rhyme at all. And it is in alphabetical order. And it's got things that don't really make that much sense. And we're looking at Sarkis, and Sarkis is looking down at us like, what are you doing? Why don't you write your own thing? Write your own alphabetical order thing and one, something that rhymes and something that's unique and creative. Do what I did. We're like, hey, we're being very traditional. We're doing exactly what you did. We're just going to lift it and say it identically. He's like, yeah, but it doesn't even rhyme. It sucks. Do something better. Be traditional. Do what I did. Don't just imitate me. Make sense? I'll give you guys another example. One time we were praying liturgy here and someone came to, to visit the church. He's a lack of a better word, super deacon. And uh, he was serving in the altar with me, and I told him to do the lit litany of the gospel. And so he got to the part here with the cross, and he said, Stasite metavovotheo. He said it in, in, you know, he said, Stasite metavovotheo kosomento agiovangelio. Right? And he comes up to me, he goes, I'm so sorry, I don't know it in English. So I froze, and I just, I said it, you know, and I didn't, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm like, oh, I don't care, it's fine, you know, whatever. He's like 25, I mean, he's not a kid, right? And... So during the sermon, we start having a little discussion, and I say, so what does stasite uh, mean? He goes, I don't know. I said, okay, so why do you got that look on your face when you say it? He said, what look? I mean, you're holding the cross, you got that stern look on your face, and you're saying it, and you don't know what it means. He goes, well, I mean, that's just, you know, what you got to do. You got to have a stern look. I said, okay. I said, so what is stasite in Coptic? And he goes, well, that is Coptic. I said, no, it's not. It's Greek. It is? Yeah. It used to be Coptic. But then they changed it. Do you know why they changed it? Because no one understood the Coptic. So the people in the audience understood Greek. So the church came along and said, well, geez, nobody understands the Coptic. We've got to make this into Greek. So they changed it to Greek so that the people can understand. Because it's an instruction. What, what does it mean? Does anyone know? Stand in the fear of God and listen to the Holy Gospel. It's an instruction. That's why the deacon's holding the cross. He's got the stern look on his face. He's looking for people who are sitting. He's going to hit them, throw a cross at them, whatever he's going to do, right? So it's an instruction. So we got to change it so people understand. So the church changed it from Coptic to Greek so that people could understand. He's like, wow. And, I go, and then you go and you go say it in the Greek. I said, it gets better. The Greek that you just said is ancient Greek. It's not even modern Greek. If, there were, if it was a room full of Greek people, they still wouldn't know what you're talking about. 
it turns out no one on earth that is alive understands what you said. There is no human alive who knows what you said. And you gave an instruction. So you don't know what you said. No one knows what you said. What are we doing? What is that? That is blind traditionalism. And it's not a big deal because you, you can look at the screen. Uh, that's not a solution. That's an after-the-fact thought like, well, I can hold on to my thing and then have a screen. That's not what we're talking about here. Right? That's just you know patchwork. Right? The concept is more important. What scares me is that you think you're doing the right thing. We've got to talk about that. What scares me is you think I'm being traditional. We have to talk about that. What scares me is you think I'm, being, I'm honoring the fathers by saying it in ancient Greek. We have to talk about that because I don't think they're honored. I think they think you're wrong. And I think they would say, why don't you do what I did, which is change it into the language of the people that the people understand. This is what we did. So if you want to be traditional, do that. Make sense? So tradition is not the same as imitation. He continues, thus for us to be traditional implies an imitation of the fathers in their creative work of discernment. Like them, we must be dedicated to the task of saving human beings from error and not just maintaining abstract propositional truths. This is so important. We must be dedicated to the task of when, when someone, you know, sorry, I'm, I'm picking on a, a group here, but when someone says, we have to say this thing, and you think, why? For whom? So we can preserve it in the church. Who is the church? Is it this building? No, we're gonna, we're gonna stop paying rent here in a few days and that will be gone. What is the church? It's us, it's me. It's you, it's all of us. So when you say, I'm serving the church, are you? Well, I went and I learned this long thing that I'm going to say in a language I don't understand, nor will I understand it, and nor will you. Are you serving me at this point? Yeah, Ahmed, could you close the door? Thank you. Are you serving people at this point? Or what are you serving? And that is a scary proposition. Because now there's something else, there's this thing that's watching over us to make sure we do it the right way, whatever that means. And it's a very, it's not a Christian concept. And so look what he says, we must be dedicated to the task of saving human beings from error. That's the task. It's not the task of preserving the church. Preserving the church as a museum, as a historical artifact is not a Christian task. It may be nationalistic, it may be, you know, there may be some sympathy there, there may be some nostalgia there, nationalism, whatever you want to call it, but that's not Christianity. He says, we must imitate their constant effort to understand their contemporaries and to use words and concepts which could truly reach, reach the minds of the listeners. We can't keep using the old methods to address new problems. Like one of the things that keeps coming to mind and I still haven't figured it out, but I keep thinking about it is Sunday school. What Pope Shenouda did in the 50s was amazing. It was dynamic. 
It was creative. It was outside the box. He invented Sunday school, like single-handedly. Why? You have priests who only, who didn't understand a thing, didn't know their own theology, just prayed in Coptic, didn't even understand what they're saying, had, were illiterate, some of them. You had illiteracy and ignorance everywhere. No one knew anything about the faith. So Pope Shenouda introduced something new to the church. He reacted and he created Sunday school for the purpose of teaching people, kids, adults, whoever will listen, something about the faith. It's a great endeavor for Egypt in the 1950s where there were no books. There were no books in Egypt, no books. These guys would smuggle books into the country as best they can, scrap together their money. They had one library in one central location. All these servants would drive to this one location in Egypt, read the book, drive, handwrite notes on a piece of paper, drive to another village and say the words. That's how little information they had, how illiterate everybody was, how much ignorance there was in the church. So the only solution without an internet, without a typewriter, without anything was Sunday school where you had a centralized location in Giza where all the books were located. Okay? Do we have that problem now? Is there a lack of information about the church? Do I need to give any kid a lesson about St. Athanasius or about Council of Nicaea? What will a Google search show me about the Council of Nicaea? Seven million pages. I can read about the Council of Nicaea until I'm blue in the face. Is that what I need now? Do we need someone to tell us the story of Noah's Ark? Or does every one of these kids have 30 Bible, uh, you know, uh, picture Bibles in their home? We had dozens of them. How many kids' ch church books do we have? Millions. Is that the problem? We don't have access to good information anymore? No. There's books coming out of our ears. You can get them on PDF, you can get them on Kindle, you can get them on the internet, you can get them any way you want, you can get them read to you if you don't want to read it. You can play it on tape. We don't need that. What do we need? We have loneliness, we have depression, we have anxiety. We have other problems. We don't need to learn about a council. That's not what the best use of that half an hour is. And maybe is that even the best use of that half an hour? I don't know. My point is, should I be using the solution from the 1950s of Egypt to 2020 Tustin? Probably not. Without even looking too deeply into it, I can tell you, probably not, right? Especially given the amount of information we have access to. He continues, true tradition is always a living tradition. It changes while remaining always the same. It changes because it faces different situations not because its essential content is modified. This content is not an abstract proposition. It is the living Christ himself who said, I am the truth. So the idea behind tradition is it doesn't change in its essence, but it is always adapting to its environment, right? And we see Ambassador taking very brave, assertive movements in the church here in the United States by even starting these American churches, by offering different services, by thinking in a, in a way to be more pastoral to the people. Because once you start saying, look, you know, the church is here and you have to come up to the church. I'll tell you, I know that's not what Jesus did, right? I think Jesus kind of came down to us, right? And so if he can come down, 
then the church can come down because he is the church. And just like he made himself so approachable that all his disciples would joke around with him and talk with him and, you know, even make fun at times and take these cracks and take these shots and say stuff that's kind of rude, right? They were so used to him and so comfortable with him, right, that you would hope that the church could be that way, right, where it comes down to the level of the people and embraces them wherever they are. We see this whenever you talk to a little child, right? What's the first rule of thumb when you talk to a little child? You get down on one knee and you look them in the eye and you get to their level. If you stand, you know, four feet taller than them and look down on them, communication doesn't work very well. You get down on a knee and you look them in the eye and you talk in a light voice and you relate to them at their level, right? And so this is what the church has to continue to keep doing. And unfortunately, sometimes we're locked by this false concept of traditional as imitation, as dead, as we have to be true to some historic thing, and that's the purpose of the church to preserve these. No, the purpose of the church is to bring people, today's people, to Christ in their own way and meet them where they need to be met and love them the way they need to be loved. And there are so many issues that are occurring, that are happening, that we have to start addressing and talking about. So the last thing I'll say is, wh where's this mindset coming from? So do you know that in the, uh, the very, very traditional Islamic world that you have to ride a, cam a camel to the mosque to be sunnah, right, to be uh, true law? Does everyone know that? And there's some villages in Egypt where you still ride a camel to the mosque. And then when you ask them, why are you riding a camel to the mosque? Why don't you drive your car? Do you know what the answer will be? Did Muhammad have a car? And you're like, that's airtight. And there are some mosques that don't use a microphone. You want to know what the answer is when you ask them, why don't you use a microphone? Did Muhammad have a microphone? So I watched a lot of YouTube videos. Once you get into this stuff, it's pretty fascinating. I spent like a good four hours watching YouTube videos and holy moly, right? And, and you realize that the completeness of Muhammad's teaching means that nothing can be added, deleted, or altered from the teaching of the Prophet, right? Nothing changes. My job is to faithfully give the teaching of the Prophet in the way the Prophet gave it. Does this sound familiar? It sounds like the uncle that taught me Sunday school. And where'd he get it from? his local mosque. And so this idea of traditionalism is very Islamic. Not one word is to be altered. I will die before I change a word. And this is when you hear people say things like, people died for the language of Coptic. No, people died for Arabic because that's God's language. And Allah told Muhammad to only speak in Arabic. But we don't have that deal going. No one died for Coptic. Anyone who died for a language died for the wrong thing. No one dies for a language, right? It's like someone says, I'm going to die for Italian. Kill me, or I, I, but I have to speak Italian. Like, all right, you can die. Don't say Jesus made me do it. You just, you just really like Italian. I get it. Feel free. But don't call that religious, right? And we've had lots of people who say Greek is the holy language. Uh, Latin is their holy language. 
you know, the Jews say <laughs> Hebrew is a holy language, Aramaic. I mean, you can, you can always pick it. We say Coptic, whatever, right? No one dies for languages. And so what we have received, we must deliver completely the same. This is an Islamic concept. I heard it over and over on YouTube. And so I think this is what's influencing our concept of traditional. I have to hand it exactly the way I received it from my father, and they hand it just the way they received it. And if it was said like this, it must be said like that. But we've lost the purpose of saving souls, of bringing people to God, of bringing people to Christ. I'll give you uh, one last example. When the ancient uh, Christians came to Egypt, um, there was a, a, a hymn that they used to sing to the Pharaoh. And this hymn was sung to the Pharaoh, and I'll tell you the tune. It goes, Okay, you all recognize it. Although my singing isn't that bad, isn't that good, but you know, whatever. I'm not as good as Michael. Um, it's Abordo Farahi, it's the O King of O King of Peace. So what did the Christians do when they heard this pharaonic, pagan, satanic hymn? It's pharaonic, pagan, satanic. Good? What did the good Christians do? Did they spit all over it and say, burn? They said, love it. It's a catchy tune. Let's just get rid of the Pharaoh being God part and let's say King of Peace. And let's add some Christian words to it. So again, I want you to see, what did they do? They took a, the pharaonic pagan hymn of the country and they put Christian words to it. That's what they did. So if I want to imitate them and I want to be traditional, what should I do? I know, I'll sing it exactly like they sang it. I'll sing the pharaonic hymn with the, with the language I don't understand and be just like them. Is that what they would want? Or they would say, well, shouldn't you, when you go to a country, take the tune, something beautiful and mel uh, melodious from the country and add Christian words to that? Isn't that what we did? So that's what you should do, right? We see this in the missionaries in Africa, right? When any, has anyone here been to Africa, to Kenya, to any of these places with missionary work? They take all of their tribal songs and they add Christian words to it. And they say, you guys play the drums? Play the drums. Knock yourself out. That's traditional. That's very, very, very traditional. The most untraditional thing you can do is say, now I want you to sing these Coptic hymns just like we sing them in Egypt. Very untraditional. Let me force it down your throat. But we don't sing like that. I don't care. We do. Well, now we're not. Now we're conquerors. Now we're imperialists, right? So... Think about what the church did, right? And, and we, should, we should be imitating that creative spirit. I can walk into a country, hear a pagan, a demonic song and say, no problem. I'll add some Christian words. I'll prep it on the sides. I'll make it nice and flowy and we'll, we'll run with it. You guys like this tune? Yeah, we love this tune. No problem. We'll use it. See the spirit? It's beautiful and it worked. For us to come along and say, well, no, what we're going to do now is we're just going to say the same thing and do the same thing that you did back 2,000 years ago is not traditional. That's not what they would want. I'll stop there. I'm going to get thrown out anyway. Yes, Michael.
continuing. Michael makes a great point, right? The book of Acts is the only book that doesn't have an ending, right? Most books will say, glory be to God, amen, something. The book of Acts is the only book in the Bible that does not end, it just stops. And the reason, and if you notice, what do we read right after the book of Acts in the church? When we read the, uh, in the, on Sundays? What's the next book we read? The Synexarium, which is the history of the church, which is the continuation of the book of Acts. So the book of Acts, we read it, it stops, it's the Acts of the Apostles, and then we continue it with the history of the church because the church doesn't end, right? And so the, the, the point Michael's making is the church has to be alive and continuing. There's a reason why there wasn't an end to it. It didn't end. We didn't lock it in the first century, say now we have to do everything like the first century, which by the way, when you look at the history of what we do, we don't do everything like the first century. Not at all. Many of the things we do came along in the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Happens all the time. Is that wrong? Is that, is that a crime? Is that like, oh my gosh, scandal? No, that's good. That means we're alive. If we locked in in the first four centuries and said, we're going to keep it like this, then it's a dead museum. And it, it's very consistent with Islamic traditionalism. Not one word shall be changed, added, or deleted, but it's not consistent with Christianity, right? And we see even the stories of the fathers of the church in the early church where, you know, before they agreed on the date of Easter, for example, right? You know, you know whatever. Some people prayed on, you know, whatever, April, whatever, and these guys prayed a week later. And, of course, the congregations are up in arms, right? Those guys are heretics. They're going to burn in hell. They're praying the Easter one week early. You know how people are, right? And so you read about these saint patriarchs, what would they do, right? Their, their church is going to break the fast, I don't know, whatever, April you know, 14th, and this other heretic church, you know, Syria, is going to break it April 7th. So what would the patriarch do? He goes to Syria. He prays with the church that's breaking the, the Easter early or whatever when they break it and celebrates with them and breaks his fast and prays with them. Why? Because that's the right thing to do. Who cares what day it is? Right? But people love to get caught up on these details. Right? But that's, that's being traditional. Right? That's the true spirit of the church. It's very alive and dynamic and simple. We like to overcomplicate it. I mean, some of those divisions are just historical, like the Russian Coptic division is from 451, right, on, the, on the, 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 the concept of the two natures versus one nature of Christ. But having said that, I think both traditions evolved differently, right? And there isn't one that's right or one's wrong. You know, I'll give you guys a very quick example. In Coptic iconography, the color green is the color of, the, of Satan, okay? So you want Arius, he's always in green. The devil with Archangel Michael, he's always in green. The bad soldiers and the crucifixion, they're in green, okay? That's just the way Coptic iconography evolved. And then if you look at the, the, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the color green is the color of earth. It's the color of life. It's the color of bounty, right? It's the color of trees and plants and all the good things. 
right? Is which one's right, which one's wrong? No, there's no one right or wrong, right? There's two traditions that have evolved in their own way and they have their own meanings for their own reasons, right? So it doesn't really matter to me, right? And for me to dig in and say, no, I will die for the color green to be the symbol of th the devil, it's kind of silly, right? So we have to allow that orthodoxy isn't a dot, it's a circle, right? And you may be here in the circle and I'm here in the circle and I'm this guy's over there and so that's okay, we're all in the circle. Right? It's not a, are you on the dot or not? Are you standing on the, you know, the, 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 the right spot or not? Right? And then if you're not, then I can attack and condemn you and shame you and you know, humiliate you or do whatever it is I want to do as a good Christian. Right? But rather, but rather it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a circle. Right? It's, there is no right answer. Nope. Yeah, Marla. Yes. I know. And she just said, is it still work in progress? I'm like, yeah, that's probably right. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't even. Yeah, they put up the Aswan Dam, so it doesn't overflow anymore. Um, yeah, I mean, in fact, Embatuedros, when he first became a patriarch, made this, con this, this comment. He said, why are we praying for the Nile? In America, you should be praying for the Mississippi. And people lost their minds. People are like, you're gonna, you're gonna go to hell for that. That's, that's for sure, right? People lost their minds. And there is a very strong, large group in Egypt who are very, I'm not gonna call them traditional because they're not. Um, mental, I think is a good word. Um, who, who are opposed to Ambatwedros at every level of political correctness. Here we go. Um, uh, uh, opposed to Ambatwedros at every move, anything he wants. I mean, when he even like wants to normalize some relations with Catholics or whatever, heretic. I mean, just they're, they're very, 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 yeah. And it's unfortunate, right? Because, but they believe in their hearts that this is what's right. Like my job is to stick, much like this Muslim guy, and not change one word or one letter or one anything of this, and I have to deliver it as I received it, and that is my job. And I will die for that job. What about Jesus? Ah, what about the people who cares? So one of the w one of the things that that um, yeah so, so no exactly so so what Embasrapion does which is is wonderful and and many other bishops do the same thing is he will talk about pastoral needs right so in in our diocese for example he'll say we have a pastoral need for this and that's what we're going to do. We're not changing theology, we're not changing dogma, we're not changing the canons of the church. We're saying pastorally, our people need this. Now, you don't have to do it in your diocese. That's okay. And you can do what you want in your diocese, and I'll do what I want in my diocese, as long as it doesn't affect the faith, right? And so things like the 25th of December, he said that's a pastoral need. People have 25th off. In Egypt, people have the 7th off. You know, the government gives you the 7th off. And so they can have Christmas Day 
we don't have that. We don't get the seventh off. We get the 25th off. So he's like, I'd like to pray on the 25th pastorally because our, our people get the 25th off. And so that's how he's approaching these things. Um, and so that gives some leeway, you know. And, and if you look at something like the Catholic Church, I mean, the way the Catholic Church deals with these things is they adopt, I mean, how's the Catholic Church in, you know, 150 countries? They're very uh, light-handed, not heavy-handed, right? They go into a country, they go into Bolivia, wherever, and they allow the Bolivians to continue to pray similar to the, the way they used to pray, right? But they baptize it a bit, and they make it a little bit more Catholic, but they let give them some freedom. And they'll ordain Bolivian priests and have Bolivian deacons and, and allow the traditions and so that the Catholic Mass is, you know, is in, in hundreds of languages, right? And it's very different. I mean, you go to one place, you can hear it with a banjo, right? I mean, another place, organ, another place in Latin, another place in whatever. And it's all, it's, but it's all different. It's all the same, right? And so they, they have a bit of a better grasp on that ecumenical. We, we just, I mean, we left Egypt like, you know, seven minutes ago. Right, so we're still in the, you know, we, it has to be like Shobra or, or else we're all, you know, so we're still in that state, I think, um, but we're getting better, you know, I think. In here it does, yeah. Let's hope this recording never gets out. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's why. <laughs> I know. I'm aware of that. Any other questions, comments? All right. Glory be to God forever. Amen. Let's stand up and pray. Make us worthy to say with all thanksgiving, our Father who art in heaven.